This evening we resume our study of the Gospel of Mark. Please turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 4. And as you're turning, let us just glance back briefly at um, what we looked at before, where we spoke about Christ's true family at the end of chapter 3, where we see this increasing hostility towards Christ and His ministry resulting in really a division between those on the outside and those on the inside. And so we talked about what it meant to be part of His true family. And here in Mark 4, this theme is developed a little more as we consider the parable of the sower, or we could also call it the parable of the soils. So let us read Mark 4, 1 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell upon thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a time. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Amen. And we praise God that He has spoken to us tonight in His holy and inerrant word. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you as ones who have been made alive by your Spirit. Spirit of God, quicken us tonight. Make us alive so that we might receive your word. So that you would hide it deep in our hearts and that it would produce fruit even a hundredfold, Lord, we ask. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In June of 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon to his congregation which seemed very ordinary at the time. He didn't particularly 
get a lot of, of reception or, or maybe we could say attaboys from his congregation or, or a lot of good feedback from them. They listened to the sermon. They went home. Edwards was likely a busy pastor, and then a couple weeks later, he was asked to preach a sermon in a neighboring town. And so on July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards ascended the pulpit in Enfield, Connecticut, fixed his eyes on the back of the church, and began to preach the same sermon again, the sermon that we know as sinners in the hands of an angry God. The account that we know is that second delivery of that sermon where Edwards preached and the Spirit of God fell with conviction and people were crying out as he spoke about God's judgment, as he spoke about the wrath of God upon sinful men. Edwards had to stop five times as he delivered that sermon and he finally got through it and God brought a great harvest through the delivery of that sermon. And we think about that and we think, what was different Here he preached it with seemingly very little effect. And then later he preached it and souls were saved right under his very preaching at that time. Well, I think the parable that is before us gives us some light into that as as we consider the four types of soils that are in this. In this, we're challenged to be that good soil that we read about at the end. And I want us to consider this text under four head, or excuse me, three headings that very closely parallel the text. First of all, we see the mercy of the sower. Secondly, we see the purpose of the parables. And thirdly, we see the response shown in the parable of the soils, in the four soils that Christ gives in this parable. Again, in this text, we see this common theme that we see again and again in Mark of these growing crowds and these great crowds that throng our Lord Jesus as he's teaching. And we see the pattern that that, that is what he did. He taught. In, in this text this evening, the crowds were so great that he took the tactic of preaching from a boat. And he was able to get in a boat, maybe it was Peter's boat, and cast off a little ways from the shore. His voice likely projected well across the waters. The crowds were held at bay, and many could gather on the shore to hear Christ in his teaching. We see that this is actually the second time in Mark that the word parable is used. We've talked about how Mark is very action-oriented, and we see a lot of Christ's deeds and less of his teaching than we see in other Gospels. But here we see an encounter with a parable that's kind of the way we typically understand parables, as a story about a common event event or occurrence in everyday life that is used to illustrate a spiritual truth. But hopefully we'll see in this text that there's a deeper purpose of parables. And this parable actually illustrates that. And so we really could say that this parable tonight is a parable about parables. It helps us understand the purpose of parables. So the first thing that we noticed about this passage is the mercy of the sower. And the first thing we see is that Christ summons their attention. He says, listen to me. He says, this is important. I want your attention. We think of how God in other places calls our attention. In Psalm 34, we read, Come ye children, hearken unto me. 
I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He calls their attention. A few of my children have had or have or have had attention issues. And, and maybe, maybe they get that from me. But I remember when they were little, my wife would, would make sure that they were looking at her. She would point to her nose and say, look here. In other words, don't be looking off over here. Give me your attention. And that's what Christ is saying here as he begins this parable. Secondly, while our text doesn't specifically point this out, it's very clear in other places that the mercy of the sower is seen in that he reveals himself in all of creation. We heard that expounded this morning beautifully from Romans 1. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. All of creation speaks his name. Through God's creation, we see his eternal power and divine nature. And because of the way God has revealed himself, man is without excuse. We see this, the mercy of the sower. We also notice that the mercy of the sower is shown in that the seed is scattered widely. Now, nowadays, farmers use high-tech equipment and global positioning systems to make sure their seed is right in the perfect place. They don't sow it kind of widely as the sower probably did that Jesus was talking about. But the mercy of the sower, Christ is the sower, he explains that to us, The mercy of the sower is shown in that he broadcasts the gospel widely. The gospel is for everyone. We heard that this morning as well. It is sown, the seed is sown on all kinds of soil. It's not just given to those who have the perfect soil. It's given to those, even those whose hearts are hardened. Those who are tempted by the idols of riches and possessions. All kinds of men and women hear the word. And in our day and age, we have so many avenues in which to receive God's Word. We have it on the printed page. We have it on our phones. We can listen to it while we drive. There's a a wide variety of ways in which we receive the seed of the gospel. I had a brother tell me recently that he was having a month of Sundays in which he was listening to a sermon every day using our church app or the website. And, And he was able just to consume more of God's word than he had in the past. We see God's mercy in that the sower sows the the word widely. I pray that you will not receive that you will not fail to receive his word as it is proclaimed to you because it's very readily available to you. Secondly, we see in this parable that Christ takes time to explain the purpose of the parables. Perhaps your Bible is like mine, and the heading above verse 10 says simply the purpose of the parables. Those here in this text, those closest to Jesus, ask him about the parables. And and Jesus' answer may be somewhat surprising. It may not be what you expect. We might expect him to say, well, it helps you understand the kingdom. And there is that aspect of it. But... There's also the aspect in which it is, re, it is concealed from some. So there's an aspect which it is, the kingdom is revealed, but it's also concealed to some. Let's look at that. 
To those on the inside, those closest to Christ, the parables were given to reveal and illustrate the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, this word secret from our text, it's elsewhere translated as mystery. And we don't read that a lot in the Gospels. Paul, however, uses this term of mystery quite a bit. And it refers to something that was previously veiled or unknown, but has now been revealed under the new covenant. Now it is, it is shown, it is clear to God's people. These disciples in Christ's circle had been shown the glory of the inbreaking of the promised Messiah, bringing in, ushering in the kingdom of God. Now, while Mark is, is good and, and honest about giving us, showing us the struggle that the disciples had in understanding and coming to a full understanding of the details of, of the kingdom of God, yet they were beginning to see it. It was being revealed to them through the parables. But for those on the outside... And Jesus uses that phrase in verse 11. To those on the outside, he said, everything's in parables. Who were these outsiders? Well, in the previous passage, it was both the religious leaders who reject him, and it was even his own family who seemed to misunderstand him and seemed to fail to accept his message at that time. Conversely, the insiders were those who were physically close to Jesus who listened to his word, who followed him, and who did his will, as he tells us in chapter 335, at the end of of chapter 3. And to illustrate his meaning on the purpose of the parables for those on the outside, he quotes this passage from Isaiah 6. Now, you are probably familiar with Isaiah 6 in that it's God's call to Isaiah and the vision that, that Isaiah had of the majestic God, high and lifted up, and the train of His glory filled the temple, and the, and the angels were there singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But the, the passage that Christ quotes here in verse 12 is a few verses later from that um, event in Isaiah 6. And... He recalls the words that God spoke to Isaiah as he issued his call, warning him of the people's response to his prophetic word. Now, we've got to think about the the setting of Isaiah 6. And it's interesting that while some of the prophet's call was in the first chapter, like we read about in Jeremiah, Isaiah's call comes a few chapters later. And in the chapters leading up to Isaiah 6, in in Isaiah 2 through 5, we we see the disobedience of Israel's leader and the leaders and the judgment that they face as a result. And then Isaiah 6 breaks in and shows us the glorious majesty of, of God, that He is the King, the kingship of Yahweh. And in Mark here... Christ the Messiah ushers in the kingdom of God. And and Christ's offer of salvation is met with, really with rebellion cloaked in piety, as one commentator said. And that is those religious leaders who, who wanted to appear pious, but yet they were rebellious against the message of Christ. So just as Yahweh was rejected in Isaiah's day, 
Jesus is rejected here in Mark's gospel. And just as Isaiah's prophetic word would have the effect of further hardening the leaders of Israel in his day, so Christ's parables would further harden those who reject him. And there's an indication of coming judgment in Christ's words. These parables will further condemn those who are rejecting him in that day. And God's coming judgment will accomplish his sovereign purposes. So these parables reveal the kingdom of God to his followers, to his true followers, and yet they conceal it to those on the outside, to those who are already rejecting God. And we must also notice that Christ intends for his disciples to get this. He wants them to get this. He even kind of chides them and says, if you don't understand this one, how are you going to understand any of the parables? So this parable is fundamental to understanding all the parables. There's something basic here for all of them. They are to reveal the kingdom of God to those who truly follow Christ, and they conceal it to those who are already rejecting the message and are really under God's judgment. What about you tonight? Are you one of Christ's followers? Does this parable explain the kingdom of God? Or are you hardened by it? If you, are, if you sense that you are drawn to Christ and His teaching, follow that call. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you, James tells us. And if you're not drawn to Christ through His teaching, through His parables, then cry out for mercy. That is the time for you to be very concerned that you are not being drawn through Christ's teaching. So Christ has given us the purpose of the parables, and now let us consider the responses shown in the four soils. The first soil that Christ has spoken of is the hardened soil, the ground that is packed hard, where people walk a path day after day, packing down that soil. It's worn, it's incapable of receiving the seed. Soil contains nutrients to help a seed grow. It contains moisture. It holds moisture so that that seed can germinate, can grow. Yet the hardened soil of the path cannot be penetrated for the seed to receive that which it needs from the soil. I think about when I was younger, my dad loved, loved to garden and sometimes I would run that tiller. I, I loved running equipment and if, you know, I, I love to see it churning up the soil. But if you ever hit hardened soil, that, that tiller would just almost jump out of the ground. It, it could not penetrate that. It would, take, it would take a lot of work to get that soil broken up. And that soil on the hardened path will not receive the seed. It just sits there. The birds come and eat it. And, and in his explanation, he tells us that Satan is the one who plucks up that seed of the gospel when it's not received in that hardened soil of the heart that is hardened to the things of God. So what about you? Is your heart hardened to the message of the salvation in Christ? Does Satan come easily to that hardened ground and steal the gospel seeds that are sown here at Christ Church in the preaching of the word? Is, that, is the seed of the gospel that's proclaimed from this pulpit taken up from your heart because it's hardened against the things of God? We must beware of that. The next soil that Christ tells us about is the rocky soil or the stony ground. 
in Kansas, there's a beautiful area of the country. I think it's beautiful. That's my home state. Um, it, but it's, it's north and east of Wichita, and it's called the Flint Hills. It's, it's beautiful rolling hills with very few trees. But the reason they call it the Flint Hills is because it's very rocky soil. And it's pretty when it's green, but if there's not much rain, it doesn't stay green very long. Because it's such rocky soil. These are folks that, that don't have true faith or a true experience of salvation. These are individuals who may respond with great emotion to the Word of God, yet there's very little depth to their understanding, and their faith is not really true faith. I remember I had a friend in high school, and, and probably no doubt some of you could, could share this experience, but I knew a young man who, would, who we went to youth camp together, and he responded with great emotion to, to the preaching and to the services there. And, you know, he seemed to have a great start in his Christian life. He even burned his rock and roll tapes. But in a few weeks, he was right back and hanging around with the same sinful friends and and wanting to follow the pleasures of sin. But there was not true faith. It seemed that the soil, his, his soil was rocky. There wasn't that firm, settled conviction of sin and deep abiding faith in Christ that drove him to his knees and kept him humble before God. There was no root. Therefore, there was no fruit. The third response, the third type of soil, is what Jesus describes as thorny soil. These are the ones who seem to make a promising start to the Christian life. Yet other things come in and choke the word, as our text says in verse 7. Now, any of you that have done even a little gardening have to recognize the danger of weeds that grow up and how quickly they can grow up. I was always that one that in about March in Kansas, even, even earlier, I wanted to have a huge garden. And I've been known to plant bigger gardens than I could, could handle because the weeds come up, in, in, up there in May and June and they can just overtake the things that you have planted. If weeds are not consistently pulled out, they can soon take over. They choke the plants. I remember one time we planted a flower bed and we mixed up this soil. and We thought it was, it was really rich. We, we'd gone to a horse farm and, and added these things to, to, the, um, to the soil. And we planted these flowers and the flowers sprouted. But what we didn't realize is there was weeds, the seeds in the soil and in that manure. And before long, it was just overtaken. We could barely see the flowers for the weeds that grew. Jesus says that these individuals are overcome with the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. It's like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, professing that he had diligently kept God's commands. But Jesus went right to his heart, saying, sell what you have and give it away. What was his response? He, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions, Scripture tells us. He was unwilling to part with those things that he loved. He couldn't pry his hands off of his earthly possessions. This passage reminds us that riches are deceitful. If one puts their trust in them, they, can, they quickly find out that they're untrustworthy. They can soon fly away. Scripture tells us in one place that, that God can just blow upon 
the things that you have, the things that you hold on to, and they're gone. They cannot bring you happiness or freedom or contentment, and they can lead your heart away from God. Matthew 6 warns us that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. These things, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and wrong desires can choke the seed of the word. The final soil is what we should be eager to learn about, what we should be eager to to consider, and hopefully what we want to have within our hearts. It is that good soil. These are those who, as as J.C. Ryle says, who really receive Christ's truth to the bottom of their hearts. They believe it implicitly and obey it thoroughly. In them, sin will be hated, mourned over, resisted, and renounced, he writes. These are the ones that are marked by that new creation lifestyle that Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We read it this morning. Daryl read it this morning. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In these individuals, in this person, there will be a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. In these people, the seed of the gospel takes root and bears fruit. In this soil, the seed finds nourishment and moisture for growth. This person will be eager to repent, eager to trust in Christ. They will find their lives marked by obedience, not simply out of duty, but out of a love for God and a gratefulness for the salvation that is theirs in Christ. And what is it that marks the lives of those who, where that gospel seed grows in that good soil? Well, he makes it very plain in the scripture. He tells us it's fruitfulness. They produce Now, I'm not just talking about doing things in the church. I'm not just saying that if you have good soil that you're volunteer for VBS, although I'm sure Kendra would appreciate if you did. But I'm talking about more than just doing things. The fruitfulness that is seen here involves a life that is growing in Christ's likeness, a growing appetite for the Word of God. A desire to be in God's house with God's people to worship Him on the Lord's day. This fruitfulness should show itself in a love and a concern for fellow believers. Those whose whose, that seed is growing in that good soil should have a desire to see others brought into the kingdom. There should be spiritual offspring. One sign of life in a culture is is the birth and growth of children. Are you seeing spiritual offspring, either in your own children walking with the Lord or in, in others being brought into Christ, as a, into the kingdom as a result of your influence? These should have a growing faith in the promises of God. These are some of the fruits that we should see in the life of those whose seed grows in that good soil. And some will yield more than others, but it should always be marked with fruitfulness. So what about you? How are you helping to prepare the soil of your heart to receive the seed of God's word? Do you seek to prepare your heart prior to coming to church so that the seed of the word can take root quickly and grow? Do you seek to keep the soil of your heart 
readily receptive to the Word and Spirit by daily seeking God and His Word. Is your life bearing fruit? What kind of soil are you this evening? What kind of response are you going to have in your heart and mind to Christ's parables and to God's Word tonight? Let us pray. Eternal God, we thank you for the message of your word. We thank you for this parable. We thank you for the way that these parables, Lord Jesus, that you gave to your disciples explain and illustrate the kingdom of God. And yet for those who reject you, they only further harden. So Lord, I pray that none would go from this place tonight being further hardened to the message of the gospel. I pray, Lord God, that the seeds of the gospel that are here in your word that have been that have been broadcast across this sanctuary this evening would fall upon good soil. Lord, I pray that we would cultivate our soil, that that the fallow ground would be broken up. Lord, that it would be rich soil that would readily receive your word daily. Give us grace that we might love you more, that we might love your word and receive it with gladness, we ask. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.